What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Elizabeth Day is a world-renowned podcast host. She's a best-selling author. She's a successful journalist. I felt like a failure, but I probably wasn't. It was what I've been told to feel. I've had countless failed relationships and and it sucks like heartbreak there is no pain like heartbreak I now realize that I learned something very instructive from each one of those relationships and from the fact that they ended it taught me something that I needed to know about myself infertility and miscarriages are not a mishap like for people who experience it it's a tragedy over which they have no control and the idea that I was exploiting it to make a full-time career out of it was so insulting because I know how fucking painful and traumatic it is to go through being vulnerable something I think we all find it incredibly hard to do And after hearing my guest's story today, I had tears in my eyes maybe three or four times. And that's because she is willing to be vulnerable and honest and open about her truth, her trauma, and the things she's learned from her most testing times. Elizabeth Day is a world-renowned podcast host. She's a best-selling author. She's a successful journalist. And honestly, she's quite frankly, one of the most wonderful, smart, lovely people I've ever had the privilege of doing this podcast with. In fact, today, one of the issues I had with this podcast was we agree on so much that it's hard to play devil's advocate with her. It was hard to challenge her views because so many of them represented mine. It felt like she was reading out of my book. I think that's powerful because she helped me build on my ideas. And some of these ideas are controversial. For some people, maybe too controversial. It is remarkable how much societal expectations can cripple your chance of happiness. And I genuinely believe that if we had more people in the world like Elizabeth, who were willing to say what she says today, then maybe that wouldn't be the case. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. One of the things that I wrote recently, which um, after doing a little bit of reading about your story and your journey really, really resonated with me, um, was this idea that society's expectations of how your life is supposed to be going will fuck you up. Mm. And when I think about, you know, you've written, written this amazing book about called Philosophy, about failure. I was thinking, what is objectively, like, what is failure? And um, my conclusion was that failure is like a byproduct of social expectations, um, that's, and as is success. So could you talk to me a little bit about how social expectations have made you feel like a failure? Of course. Yeah. I realized I had to define failure after I had launched a podcast called How to Fail and after I had written a book called How to Fail. And then I kept getting asked this very reasonable question and I realized I'd never come up with a satisfying definition for me. So the definition I came up with in philosophy is that failure is what happens when life doesn't go according to plan, which totally taps into what you've just asked me about. Because then you need to start to think, well, where does the plan come from? is it genuinely my plan? Is it genuinely what will make me happy? Or is it what I've been told I should expect my life to be? Because when I looked at some of my metrics for how my life should be, and I put that in quotation marks, 
it kind of came from like 1980s rom-coms mm-hmm. and and patriarchal society and conditioning and the idea that I'd been raised in the 80s to be a nice, pleasant, pliable girl, whereas boys were enabled to be mischievous and that was seen as kind of cute and charming. <laughs> and um, that led to me being an inveterate people pleaser, which I know is something that a lot of people have in this kind of industry. And it also led to me imagining that I wanted to be married and have children. And that's what I tried to do. And in my 30s, I did get married to the wrong person. I ended up getting divorced and I tried but failed to have babies and went through various fertility treatments that were emotionally devastating in various ways. And it got to a point when I was 36, divorced, didn't have children, where I really did feel like a failure. And the reason I felt like a failure is because that's what society had conditioned me to believe of myself. Because actually, after I'd got over the pain and the grief caused by that seminal relationship ending and by all of the IVF and coming to terms with my first miscarriage and all of that, I actually felt strong for having withstood it. And I actually felt kind of liberated too, because I had no plan for the future. And having no plan for the future can be terrifying And it can also be this enormous opportunity to change your life and to redefine it according to who you really are once you've stripped back that pretense. So that's one way in which I felt like a failure, but I probably wasn't. It was what I've been told to feel. So I want to, I want to like pick around this a little bit because I can resonate with this tremendously. In fact, that's why my book has the name it does is because I was conditioned as a black kid who was broke to believe that the thing that would make me a success was becoming this happy, sexy millionaire with a Range Rover. And that's what I wrote in the front page of my diary that, you know, that's a kid from Africa who in Africa had nothing but was, you know, my family were happy. Bring that kid into a context or a a context Mm. where the context is telling me that unless you're this, you should feel like shit. Um, that's why as a kid, I was like, well, I need to have happy, sexy minute. Uh, to be fair, if I'd wrote something else, it would have been white, straight wow. hair, right? I was relaxing my hair chemically from the age of about 12 till about 16. To, so my hair was straight. But I want to I wanna go back to this, this point about society telling you um, what you should want. Did you ever figure out what you actually wanted? That's <laughs> such a good question. Also, thank you for sharing what you just did, yeah, because I know that of, yeah. yeah, you believe like I do that vulnerability is the source of connection, true yeah. connection, and that was really beautiful. Um, I think I have figured out who I am now, but I sit here as a forty-two year old, having yeah. only just figured that out, and the reason I figured it out is because of all of those things that went wrong those relationships that ended, that imploded, the jobs that weren't right for me. Like that was what prompted me to do the soul searching. And I'm a big believer in things happening for a reason, the universe unfolding as is intended. Even if you can't make something meaningful as and when it's happening, because it's traumatic and it's devastating, I tend to believe that there will be some meaning in there in the fullness of time. There'll be something that I needed to learn. I wish sometimes I'd learned the lessons more quickly because I believe I kept being sent the same lessons until I really, really learned the the thing that I needed to learn. But I do think now that I'm aware of who I am because I've redefined my notion of success. So in the past, my success was not necessarily being a happy, sexy millionaire, although I wouldn't say no. (laughs) In the past, I had a very 
different contextual upbringing from yours. And I'm immensely privileged in many ways. And one of the ways in which I am privileged is that there was a lot of kind of creativity and um, cultural discussion in my home. Like I was surrounded by books. I was never taught to feel that that was odd that I read all the time or that I wanted to be an author, even though there was no one in my family who did that. So I had those kind of conversations and that's an, that's an enormously wealthy way to be brought up. And I, even though we didn't have that much money, that was very wealthy. And so for me then, success was about doing well at school. It was doing well academically. And I realized that when I did well at an exam, I got approval and that for me became a substitute for self-worth. So for a long time, I was on this feedback loop where I was like, if only I could just do better and do better at more things, eventually I'll feel I'm worthwhile. And I was on a hiding to nothing because actually I was outsourcing my sense of self to everyone else's opinions of me and to kind of external validation. And I've now realized, and it's taken me a long time to realize this, that my only validation that means anything can come from within and from my cornerstone relationships. So like the four or five people I love most in the world whose opinion actually means something to me. That's what it is. Now, having worked that out, how can I bring my authentic self into every area of my life? And that's why the podcast has failed and the books about failure have genuinely been such a gift to me because they've enabled me to connect with a really big audience whilst being my true self, whilst taking the risk to be vulnerable. And that for me is success, being my authentic self in integrated self. So like mm. professionally, personally, and when I'm asleep, like I'm yeah, yeah, <laughs> or in my friendship group or when I'm stroking my cat, it's always the same me. I talk in, I, so I hate fucking plugging my own book, but it's but the reason I'm doing it is because we very much think the same. And one of the chapters in my book is about making your um, your context smaller and healthier mm. in an age of social media where I can compare myself to a billion people who are all filtering themselves in fake. I implore like people to make their context, which, yeah. which is what you've described, these like four or five people, much smaller, like unfollow and mute all the toxic yeah. con people in your com like comparison bubble or whatever and make it tight and healthy. That's so hard these days. Like, it's so hard. Do you know, like how, like it's, I almost, I'd almost say it's impossible if you're on social media platforms and following like the Kardashians or whatever. How does, how does one do that? And also stay on social media? Like it's. Well, I need to ask you this. So I'm yeah. going to ask you this yeah. after I've tried to answer it because okay. I'm, I'm, sh you have to deal with it on such a massive scale. And I'm just like a micro tiny thing in comparison. So. No, I don't think that's fair. <laughs> but the way I, to answer that truly honestly, I'm still a, a huge work in progress in that respect because I have the capacity to be undone by criticism. Like I find, I take it really, really personally. Tell me how personally. Give me an example. So personally. Give me an example. Okay. Um, two recent examples. One is that I went, um, a few weeks ago, I went on a lockdown walk with a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for over a year, socially distanced, it was my daily exercise that I was allowed to do with one person from another household. And I posted a picture of us socially distanced in a park on Instagram being like, you know, this was really good for my mental health, such an enjoyable walk. And someone commented saying, I can't, this is so irresponsible of you to post this because hospitals are overwhelmed with COVID patients 
and you're encouraging people just to kind of like go out and about. And I was like, hang on a second. I was I that's where I go with it. I was like, oh my god, I've done <laughs> yeah. something wrong. Yeah. I've done something wrong. And these poor NHS doctors who are working and I've just kicked them in the face metaphorically. And I was and I have this process of like, I've done something wrong. I'm a terrible person. I feel really bad about it. What can I do? Should I reply? I go through that. That's the first place I go. And then I tell myself, no, leave it 24 hours. Leave it 24 hours before you say anything. And then I just feel I have this like harness that settles around me for a day of feeling unsettled and a bit worried and anxious. And are other people thinking that? Is there a whole group of people out there that they're like meeting up behind closed doors to discuss how awful I am? Your cancel campaign, like oh yes, and it's ridiculous. It's one, yeah, awful. (laughs) And I saw other people had liked that comment. I was like, oh my god, they hate me too. I'm, and basically, I just have to sit with it for a bit, and it helps me to talk about it, even though I sound completely do lally. But I do. I'm lucky enough to have an incredible resource in my husband who is just not on social media at all and so is a very kind of sane mind to bring to it and my best friend who's a psychotherapist (laughs) and I spoke to her about it and she was like okay where I would go with it is what pain is that person in that they've lashed out in this way and that's very helpful because it encourages you to feel compassion instead of got at and anger. I mean, that's one tiny example. Another example was philosophy got reviewed (laughs) in a couple of places. And I, you know, I am really proud of that book, but it's a physically small book. I mean, it's got a lot of good content in it. Don't get me wrong. And as you know, it's hard to make big ideas accessible, but I did not expect it to get reviewed in the national press, but it did. And it got reviewed by people who wanted to find fault with it, who did not like the fact that I seemed to be exploiting failure for my own success, which is absolutely not the case. Like, Mm. I want to share the stuff that I've learned. That's all I want to do. Exploiting failure for your own success. Fucking hell. Anyway, so that that was just like, I went down a rabbit hole of looking at the reviewer's Instagram and all of that sort of stuff, which is terrible. Anyway, I know I shouldn't go down these rabbit holes of self-loathing and most of the time I'm able not to. But just occasionally, if I'm feeling low or particularly sensitive that day, it will affect me. Mm. And my tactic for protecting myself is absolutely, as you said, as you said, to unfollow and mute, to curate my feed, to keep my phone on airplane mode in the morning. So my phone is not the first thing I look at. When I'm writing, I put my phone on airplane mode as well. And I find it a real relief. And also to try and practice the art of generosity and to believe in abundance. Because I think a lot of my mindset around competitiveness or envy is because I believe in a scarcity of resources and I Mm. believe success is scarce and I believe money is scarce and love is scarce and we all have to compete for it. Yeah. Yeah, Because there are some game. Exactly. And actually just flipping the switch and being like, no, the world is abundant and everyone's success can mirror your own. Like, and if you give and if you come at life from a generous place, then hopefully that will feed back to you. So those are my tactics. Interesting. How do you deal with it? Um, so I, I think it's important to be honest as well. I'm, 
I've read a lot about this this topic. I've spoken to psychologists. I've sat here with guests and, you know, asked them about this. And this is probably maybe a liberating, but also a terrifying answer. Even I have exactly what you described. It feels so much better. Do you know what's funny? The reason when I was laughing, you went, yeah. you said to me, you went, oh, I know it sounds cuckoo. I was laughing because it's, you were, you were okay. telling me my life. Oh. You know what I mean? Like I will, I will get one comment on one thing and I'll be like, let's look at, this Jonathan Davis and find out all about, you know what I mean? I'll oh, fucking find out how his, his family are. It'll be just, it's just something flippant comment surrounded by a thousand positive ones. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm going to f- find this guy's birth records and we're going to find out, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like private investigator. And the way you describe that feeling of like, it bothers you. You're like, shall I respond? Sometimes I respond. I'm like, then I delete it super fast. Cause I'm like, you mm. rise above. And then I've also felt in the bigger moments where something more controversial has happened i've also felt that like thing around me for about like 48 hours yeah that feeling of like anxiousness yeah like you describe like wait does is this does everyone you think yeah. all your all my friends that are quiet they all think that i've i'm finished you know yeah. what i mean and they're not saying anything <laughs> am i adopted yeah, like, exactly. like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here's my here's my here's my productive um, yeah. conclusion though is one of the things we're not taught to do is to use social media in a conscious way so we like sign up and then we just go with the algorithm mm. and the algorithm will be like, be pretty or, and they'll clap for you. Good, good. And then it'll be like, you do this. And, and we cut and, and then it will tell us to follow lots of people who we compare ourselves to and create this really unhealthy context in which we, our self-worth is clearly our, you know, achievement, success and beauty is clearly less than all of these people. And because it's so unconscious, we become a victim to the algorithms and to this, this like awful toxic experiment. So the, the the answer for me is just to use social media in a much more conscious way. You've mm. described it there, which is like unfollow people that are bad for you. Turn off your notifications. Um, when I, on Twitter, when I do a tweet and it goes like semi-viral, I know that for the next 48 hours, I'm going to get all kinds of Twitter eggs. and all. So I just mute it straight away. I did yeah. it last night. I did a tweet, start getting all these responses, hit mute and it's disappeared. Yeah. I don't see any responses. Exactly what I do. And this is the like conscious you know effort that i have to make to keep my context healthy and to protect myself yeah Yeah. do you know i had a really interesting experience on twitter recently and it's 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 fascinating because i think i care less about twitter because i don't feel as myself on twitter i suppose because i'm super conscious of how you can send out an ill thought tweet one day and like lose everything the next instagram rightly or wrongly, just feels safer. It feels more like a warm bath, whereas Twitter's like a kind of shower of hail (laughs) a lot of the time. And uh, But recently on Twitter, someone messaged me saying, oh, that thing that was in the Times magazine about you was so unfair. And I hadn't read it. And I then went and looked at the article and it was an interview with another author. And the journalist had said, had compared this person to me and a couple of other people and said, you know, now there's this trend, I'm paraphrasing, for people to use their mishaps and exploit them and turn them into full-time careers with nonstop webinars and Instagram lives. And she said like, like Elizabeth Day with infertility. And I was like, that sits so badly with me because infertility and miscarriages are not a mishap. 
like for people who experience it, it's a tragedy over which they have no control. And the idea that I was exploiting it to make a full-time career out of it with non-stop webinars, I've never done a webinar in my life, by the way, was so insulting to me because I had a career apart from that and before that. And it's that I choose to use my platform to talk about something that a great deal of people feel a great deal of misplaced shame over. And that was one example. In fact, the only one I can think of where I did respond Mm. because it was so deeply, deeply personal to who I was and I felt an attack on my integrity and a complete misreading of what I was trying to do. And I tweeted something that was really calm and that was like, you know, I refute this for these reasons. And it was an excellent lesson in how sometimes it is important to stand up for something. I had an outpouring of incredible support from other people who I'd never met which meant a great deal to me. Mm -hmm. The journalist in question had the grace afterwards to apologize, but they changed the wording in the online piece. And if I hadn't sent out that tweet, there would be no record of it having happened. Mm -hmm. And these things are really important to call out sometimes. So I think when it's an attack on the integrity of who you are and what you do, then sometimes it is worth drawing breath and saying something calmly and just stating your position. And in that case as well, you're the courage shall I say to speak about to have that vulnerability creates a culture where more people will speak out and it's that and that is so powerful and helpful for so many other people who are going through that and can't and can't find um a voice that they can relate to and you know create that sense of um understanding by by hearing your stories Mm. same with the mental health um Mm. conversation over the last 10 years if people weren't speaking about it the place we'd be in is quite terrifying to think of. And you wouldn't say those people ha- have exploited it, right? So it's just a, I mean, it's such a nonsense yeah. thing for someone to write that I actually don't want to spend too much time talking Thank about you. it. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. So let's talk about people-pleasing. Yeah. You said you're a people pleaser. Yes. Well, I'm a reformed people pleaser. Okay, now. so you used to be. No, I don't give a fuck what you think, oh, Stephen. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> um, yes. So I, like many women of my age, was raised in the 80s and early 90s in a culture where it was still very, very gender stereotyped. I mean, we've come so far in the last decade, I think, in understanding that. But as a result, I always thought that my worth as a person was predicated on keeping other people happy. So I got into a series of long-term monogamous relationships from the age of 19 to 36. Like that, the biggest gap between those relationships was like a month. You're joking. No, because I was like, who am I unless I'm 
making someone else happy, unless I'm being someone else's perfect partner, unless I'm I'm trying to second guess what they might want for dinner. And it, when they ask me like, where do I want to go for lunch? I don't know, where would you like to go? Like that was my life. It was ridiculous. And it manifested itself at work as well. I was always the person who said yes to overtime, yes to the commissions that no one else wanted, because I thought eventually I'd be rewarded. And I got a star feature writer job at The Observer, a Sunday newspaper in the UK when I was 29. And I was the youngest feature writer there. And so I felt really intimidated. And so part of my constantly saying yes and showing willing was to try and fit in and be accepted. And actually, you just become an easily exploitable (laughs) asset. Mm. And I realised after eight years of that job that I was never going to be moved anywhere. I did ask. I asked for like different roles, different challenges. And the answer was always no. And it was because I was I was doing too much where I was. Like, why would they want to move yeah, me? I was yeah. providing them with an excellent service where I was. I was making yeah. myself too indispensable. And I was absolutely refusing to complain that's what I was going to say you weren't going to complain never and never asked for a pay rise Stephen I mean (laughs) which is uh, actually makes me feel slightly sick now looking back because I am a feminist and I do believe women should ask for the pay that they deserve Mm -hmm. but I didn't I was too intimidated and um, ultimately I think people pleasing can start from a desire to be nice and to think of others and that's a really beautiful thing But taken to its extreme, which is where I would put myself, it actually becomes very selfish because you never take the time to know who you truly are. And that leads you into situations and relationships that you shouldn't be in because you're not fully giving yourself. You're giving a version of perfection to someone that is never fully real. Yeah. So I never felt able to show who I really was. And, and that's the state of mind I got married in and little wonder that it ended. Is that why you think it ended? Part of the, mm, part of the reason, like I definitely found it very difficult to find my voice for a long time. What does that mean in a relationship? Um, it meant that I was extremely conflict avoidant. So instead of saying how I felt about something, I would turn it inwards and be silent and then get mildly depressed. Uh, So that's a difficult person to be with. They don't seem difficult at all because they're like, look, I've cooked you dinner and I've got all your favourite things and I've come up with this perfectly thoughtful gift for Christmas. Mm. But that's all like distraction. It's all like, just don't look at the mess I actually am inside. Um, So I had to do a lot of work on myself. It was part of the reason. It wasn't the whole reason. Um, There was a whole pile of other stuff that I can't go into because it involves someone else. But that was definitely like, I do think that when a relationship ends, you have to look at yourself and be really honest about how you played into that dysfunctional dynamic to avoid making the same mistakes. I'm not in a relationship. I've actually really struggled with relationships. And I was thinking about this last night when I was working out. I was thinking much of the reason why I've struggled is because I think I'm probably too selfish, Hmm. right? I think that I'm uncompromising as well. And it's something that I've tried over the last couple of years to really look like defeat in myself, which is in, in work, I'm required to be a certain type of person to succeed, which is like quite certain about the right approach, focused, yeah. hardworking. Um, a lot of things in the professional environment d- aren't actually democratic. They're like the big decisions, they, they la- you, the buck stops with you. Um, in relationships, um, 
communication and mm. compromise and being more democratic in things and really trying to meet um, someone else's needs are the, in, I guess, the attributes for success. Yeah. Communication, let's talk talk about that. How important is it to, um, from your experiences in relationships that have, you know, gone done well by your definition and ended by your definition um, to communicate how you're feeling <laughs> and what your needs are? It's so important. It's everything. I'm very interested in what you just said there. So I'm going to come back to that question you asked me. The The fact that you have that you believe you might need different modes of communication in business and in personal relationships. Slightly different. I, and this is like super controversial because, because people will think that... So communication is incredibly important in my professional life. Yeah. It's actually the things... things like So in my, in my professional life, if I don't want to do something or if I think it's a bad use of my time, I say, no, don't, don't do it, cancel it. Whereas yeah. in my romantic life... You can't do that. If I don't want to do, so, I, yeah. I don't want to go down and walk walk in the park. But I've got to be like, fine. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and and I can be. I'm super in my in my professional life. I'm a radical about how I spend my time because mm. I because you get so many things calling for your time. You have to be like, nope, nope, nope. Cancel it. Move it. Nope, no, no. In my per- professional life, it's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to cook for two hours? Mm. Fine. You know. And and, and it, I, my brain's like, waste of is that an efficient use of time? You know. So interesting because in your professional life as well, you're in a position where you need to know the answers. Someone will come to you for a decision and you need to know. Yeah. You need to be like a benign dictator and just be like, yeah. right, this, that. And and therefore, do you think that in your personal life, you don't think it's okay to say, I don't know. It's, I don't know if I want to cook. It's just like the compromise of like not doing things I don't want to do. Just so. don't do things you don't want to do. This is so interesting. So my, my now partner, husband is amazing and he's a CEO. And he said to me in the early days of our relationship, I'd never do anything I don't want to do. And I was like, oh, selfish. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm a people pleaser. So I don't know, wait, <laughs> this is never going to work. Um, but he's, it, the knock-on effect of that, basically what he was saying is, I'm honest. Mm. And I will tell you if I don't want to do something. So if I say yes, that yes is really meaningful. And that's such a weight, like it's such a weight off my mind because I'm not having to second guess whether he really means it. Yeah. When he says he'll come for lunch with my family or whatever, yeah, yeah, I know that he's invested in that. So actually... I'm your husband for a second. Okay. So <laughs> I go, you say to me, I'd love to go and w- walk in the park. And yes. I go, nah. I, I want to sit on my laptop and send these emails. And then five minutes and 10 minutes later, you go, oh, I would love to cook with you. And he goes, nope, I want to watch yeah. YouTube videos about SpaceX. <laughs> okay, so I'm your wife and I say, I completely understand that because you're having a really heavy week at work. I'd really like to go to the park because I really want to spend quality time with you. And it would make me feel sad if we didn't do that. Then what would you say? I'd say yes, yeah. There you go. <laughs> and do you think you'd want to say yes? Yeah, of course I would, yeah. There you go. Of course. It's just, I don't know why I always fail on this thing. I just think the amount of time and attention um, my f- previous partners have um, have asked of me, mm. I've not been able to deliver. And I'm like, I will go, I'll text maybe once a day when I'm in my, when I'm in like the tornado of the business. Yeah, you're so like Justin. <laughs> Is that really? Yeah. <laughs> And like, it doesn't mean I don't love you. It means that I'm in, in a mild crisis, which I can't tell you about because I, I haven't got time to like divulge yeah. all of my bullshit. So, but, sorry, how you're really young, aren't you? How old are you? 20, 28 now. Yeah. And you're dating your age group, I'm assuming. 
typically a little bit younger, like yeah, two you see, years that's, younger. That it's that's very difficult. It's so difficult dating in your twenties, anyway. Full stop. Amen. But when you're you and you're mm. basically living the life and you have the wisdom of a forty-five year old that's very difficult because the other person hasn't had that life experience yet to know. Oh, you're so right. <laughs> you're so right. <laughs> Honestly, you're so right. I'll set you up. <laughs> I'll set you Got up with friends? an 85-year-old. But communication is the be-all and end-all for me. And when I met Justin, who is now my husband, it was a really difficult learning process for me because he had a very different mode of communication because he is a founder and a CEO and he didn't have time to text me and I fucking love text. <laughs> I'm a writer. That's what I don't, I hate a phone call. I've had to get used to it now in the global pandemic, mm. but I w- hate a phone call. I always think I've done something wrong. Whereas Justin was always like, why would I take time to text you when I can just call you and convey the necessary information? And he, the necessary information. <laughs> honestly. And he said this thing and I kept bringing it up and I was like, like if he if I don't hear from you for like three days, that's really upsetting to me, and it's not going to work if that continues. He's like, okay, I hear that. He's like, for me, text is a very cheap form of communication, mm. and it's something you do when you don't really care. And I do it a lot for work, so for me, it's much more important to spend time together. Anyway, mm. we've sorted it out, and I think that's about having different love languages. I thought we were going to say yeah. that at some point, <laughs> and I made him take the quiz, and it was really helpful. Was he? He was acts of service. Ah, no way. But he was also... So am I. Yeah, there you go. It's what you do. <laughs> oh, that's so... Oh. But he was also... He wasn't interested in words of affirmation at all, which is mine. Mm. I just compliment me all the time. <laughs> was he touch? Yes. I thought so. So am I. Oh my God, you're, you're literally like the yeah, same know, person. Yeah, yeah. That's... Yeah, and I was... When he took that, I was really surprised. It was quite early days of our relationship and he hadn't given me the impression of needing touch. Mm-hmm. And then once I, once I knew that, I was like, oh, that's lovely because I like that too. Are you quality time and... Uh, there's quality times, one of them. Yes. And words of affirmation, maybe? Yes, I'm totally... So I was totally words of affirmation when we took the test. But I think that's because I'd come off a a really bad patch of relationships where I didn't feel safe in those relationships. So I was constantly looking for something to paper over the cracks. And for me, that papering came in the form of compliments. Mm. That was like the easiest thing to ask for. Mm. And so that's what I thought I needed. But now actually in my relationship, I feel really safe. So for me, it is quality time. It's still words of affirmation, but quality time is super important. And and I now realise that Justin is very good at taking feedback. That's because that's the business brain, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't need to sugarcoat something. I can say, listen, I need this or I feel this. And sometimes he'll need time. I hope he doesn't like me talking about it. <laughs> He's so private. But sometimes he'll need time to like uh, think it through mm. and sort of strategize it and like mm. digest it. And I always know, it's never that he's forgotten. He'll come back and he'll be like, right, I agree. And this is the action that we're going to take. And it's amazing. And I Mm. love that. I really love that. I used to think it was unromantic. It's not at all. Mm -hmm. It's the most romantic thing because I'm being taken really seriously. And I'm guessing, this is a guess, but I do say it to him without too much like uh, emotion. Because he sounds like a very pragmatic guy. So the way that I like to receive feedback like that from my ex was just very like without blame or like Mm. um too much emotion and just like here are the facts yeah 
That's the best way I like to receive you back, you know? Yes, completely. But do sh- separate to you getting feedback, if your partner is emotional mm-hmm. and is crying at a film or is sad about something, so moved to tears or feeling anxious, so therefore... Fine. Yes. That's fine. Exactly the same. It's just the feed, you know, because, you know what I mean? You deal with people. You don't want it with judgment. Yeah. And in his business, I'm sure he'll deal with people all day who give him feedback in a very practical, pragmatic way. And that's the way you come used to it. And and he'll have the same problem as me. Whereas sometimes in business, you'll get feedback in a very, quite a helpfully emotional way. Yes. And now you're trying to deal with this. You're not sure which issue you're actually dealing yeah. with, right? Yeah. So when you present it without the emotion, I understand what I'm aiming at here. It's the yeah. same as me, yeah. I, you know, I feel like a bit of a scumbag for having uh, acts of service as my... No, that's a know, really lovely does, thing. But doesn't it sound cheap? It's like, I would like you to serve me with... <laughs> you know what I mean? I, yes. I was going through that love language thing and I was thinking, why is it that someone getting me something that they knew would help me, mm. doing something that they knew would help me, means so much to me because for me that because because my life is tough and challenging i see it as them showing an action which is action speak louder than words mm. how much they cared about helping me yeah and for me that's like i'm like oh god you know and also probably because you've had to be incredibly self-sufficient yeah yeah you're like a, the definition of a self-starter you've had to rely on yourself so much that for someone else to step in and be like i've got this for you it must, means a lot. It's yeah. so meaningful. Yeah. And you're carrying so much. So if someone yeah. comes in and says, oh yeah, I'll carry one of these bags for you. It's like, oh, thank you. Yeah. You know what I mean? I totally get it. Interesting. One of the things you said was that you are you were, I guess, um, scared of being lonely at the end of your life. Oh my gosh, yes. That's my existential fear. That really? and pigeons. Still. <laughs> um, do you know what? Maybe after this. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, the global pandemic has been so tough and so much tougher for so many people than it has been for me in myriad ways. One of the unexpected side benefits is that I've really got comfortable with my fear of loneliness because overnight my diary was totally empty. So I had no social engagements. I couldn't see friends. And it made me realise that I didn't really want to see the majority of people that I was going to see. Like I'd said yes to social situations that I didn't really want to go to, but I felt like I should and I didn't want to offend someone by not letting them down. Mm. That's still the people pleaser in me. Um, And having the freedom to choose who I wanted to invest time in was hugely beneficial for me because I realized actually that my core, my nucleus of people is very, very small. And and actually, if I've got Justin and my best friend, I'm good. I'm good. And beyond that, you know, my closest friends, like I actively want to see them. And But I realised that I was just spending a lot of time not nurturing those friendships because I knew that I would be able to step back into them and I knew that I'd be accepted because that's the level of great friendship, isn't it? Like mm. you're just always welcome back. And I was spending a lot of time trying to nurture these other ones that were less meaningful to me, that required more of it because they weren't as generous in their acceptance of me. So actually, my fear of loneliness has slightly lessened now. It's good news. Yes, isn't it? And although you probably can't tell, I am actually an introvert, but I've successfully learned how to be extrovert and how to um, pretend I'm confident when I don't feel it and all of that sort of stuff. And... I've realised that I'm also pretty resilient 
when my world shrinks. Mm. So I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs> Silver lining. Yeah. Uh, on that point of confidence, it's something that people ask me about all the time, mm. which is confidence seems to be one of the great barriers of people pursuing themselves as you yeah. described, pursuing their dreams, pursuing who they are. Some people will know who they think they are, but they don't have the confidence to take the leap per se. Are you confident? Um, yes, in certain things. So I'm confident that I can write. Mm-hmm. I'm now confident that I can podcast, that mm-hmm. I can do a good podcast. Um, you're a great talker. I was thinking this as you were speaking. I was thinking, you, I was thinking, yeah, I can understand why she has a really good podcast. Oh, thank you. You're very, you know, you're very like articulate, self-aware, but you're really good at, you know, talking. Thank it's like you. a strange thing to say to someone, yeah. but you know, you are. Well, I think I'm good at connecting with people. Mm. And that's something that I really cherish because that's where all the good stuff lies for me. Yeah, like yeah. I love having a conversation like this on such a real level mm-hmm with someone and connecting that's mm. heaven to me like this is introversion heaven <laughs> it's like i don't want to be at a big party like trying to have this conversation mm-hmm. with you like that would be stressful um so i'm confident there and you'll notice that those are all things that i do i'm not hugely confident about myself in the sense that i still w- struggle with self-worth and I realize that that's probably sounds really nauseating for me to sit here in this lovely place being interviewed for this fabulous podcast drinking my cup of middle-class green tea like it sounds absurd for me to say that and also self-indulgent but that's me being really honest like I've just got that that's something that uh I really struggle with like just feeling that I'm enough Interesting. So the conclusive chapter in my book, chapter 20, mm, is all about this it? topic. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, and I, because I think, and I spoke to some psychologists and stuff and I batted around with this idea of um, this contradiction of how I could possibly be enough but ambitious. Yeah. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like it exactly feels like a contradiction. Yeah. And that's that thing that I always fear if I, if I tackle my self-worth and I cure myself, will I just have no drive? Okay, so this is chapter oh, 20. Okay. <laughs> and it's crazy because you would have, you'll resonate with this. Yeah. I actually started the chapter, set out to answer the question and I answered it as I was typing. And, and, and so usually, as you'll discover like in the book is um, a lot of the time, it's just a shitty use of words that are holding us back. So one of the things like is, you know, is he your soulmate? That, that there's so many presumptions within that, yeah. like that you that a soulmate exists. You yeah. have one of them. You'll be able to find them. Um, and in fact, if you ask yourself, maybe the, the concept of a soulmate doesn't actually exist. Same thing with "Are you enough?" Right. So the the term "enough," mm-hmm. this is was my conclusion. First assumes that we can become less and more. Yeah. How can we become less and more? That's a good point. In in, in, in innately yeah. and intrinsically, how can we ever? How can Elizabeth ever be? intrinsically innate like inside less or more you're always going to be you same hair same arms same legs same talent same skills you inherently like intrinsically never change yeah you never become less more enough you just are the the reason why we have these metrics again is because it's an external extrinsic comparison so Mm. i am not enough in my nokia is not enough alongside an iphone yeah so i thought in fact and then when you have that feeling of like being less and more of enough, what you then pursue is 
the pursuit of becoming more but because it was driven by external factors, your ambition becomes externally driven. So for me, I didn't think I was enough. So I w- was trying to get a Lamborghini. Mm. And in fact, it's the belief, it's the knowing that you never become less more or enough, that intrinsic feeling that makes you pursue ambition, the right things for the right reasons. So once I knew I was enough, I then went after things I actually gave a shit about intrinsically. I stopped going after Lamborghinis and I started going after like, I would love to do a book. I would love mm. to learn piano. And so my conclusive point is that in fact, it's the, it's the knowing that you're enough and that in fact, you never become less or more regardless of what you achieve or accomplish. That is the foundation of real ambition. Yeah. Real ambition is for you. It's yeah. chasing what you want for your reasons. That was my conclusion. So the enough thing is actually bullshit, which is just social, which then causes bullshit ambitions like Lamborghinis. Yeah. And uh, realizing that you never, yeah, you never become less, more or enough intrinsically allows you to have intrinsic ambitions and that is real ambition that's that's my conclusive point which is so so mind-blowingly good and also connects to that whole thing that bullshit about soulmates yeah because there's that belief that a soulmate will complete you now what you're saying there you're saying that you're incomplete in and of yourself yeah and that there's only one true way to exactly. form, like all of that i hate that so yeah the question comes in a very innocent way it's like is he yeah. your soulmate and yeah. it's the moment you accept it that you also accept seven other pieces of unintended bullshit yes. which is like <laughs> that you're incomplete now that you you've done a, you have a failure at not finding this person and all of these other pieces of bullshit it's the same with like are, for me it's the same as like are you in love or have you found your passion mm. have you found your passion is like a i posted about this the other day it's like another just really difficult piece of bullshit um to to comprehend because found i've got to search for it my passion there's one of them and it's out there somewhere and once i find it it's going to feel great. Passion, what's that? How does that feel? You're, you've said the word. Are we thinking of the same thing? The same. So many pieces yeah. of bullshit, which I now have to accept. So if there was one thing that I've learned in the last couple of years, it's just like, question the question. Yeah. As much as you possibly can, because the question will fuck you when you accept it. Oh my gosh, I could not agree more. Like Also, passion... <laughs> is such an unhelpful word it's that thing of like oh did you feel did you feel passion did you feel this sexual insane sexual chemistry did you fall in love at first sight and i'm like hang on a second what you're saying there is did you feel deeply unsettled and chaotic (laughs) because that's what passion it's like a disruptive force i'm like i don't want to feel i don't (laughs) want to feel unstable and chaotic i want to feel safe and known that for me is like true romance and a relationship or a business is not a failure because it ends yeah, again. Yeah. Like yeah. you could have learned so much. You could have learned what you needed to know and therefore you can evolve and grow. Yeah. And as you say, the act of finding something, what if it's like inside you? You don't it need should to- be, shouldn't Yes, it? Like, something yours. you love to do yeah. should be something you love to do it's, without having to like go on this Easter quest. Eggs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's what you were saying earlier about ambition being an external driver really feeds into one of the most profound things I've ever learned from doing all this stuff about failure. I met this man called Mo Gaudat. He used to be the chief business officer of Google X, but he wasn't happy. And he has a lot to say about expectation versus reality. So if we can manage our expectations of life, so if they're equal to or less than our perception of events and how they turn out, then we can be happy or contented. And he was the one who really brought it home to me that we are not our worst thoughts, that our thoughts are produced by our brain as organic matter in the same way that blood is pumped around our body by our heart. Like, we wouldn't think we were defined by our blood. So why would we think that we are our thoughts? Mm -hmm. Actually, 
as you know, the premise of all meditation is that you can observe your thoughts. Who's doing the observing? That's you. That's you. Mm. Why would you need thoughts? Like you don't need to communicate to yourself. So your thoughts are just being produced by your brain constantly. Mm -hmm. And I found that really helpful. The idea that once you realize that you can train your brain to think differently and to replace negative thoughts with positive ones as Mm. much as you're able. So he gave this incredibly moving example. His son, Ali, died at the age of 21 during a routine operation. And in the aftermath of Ali's death, Mo would wake up every morning with tears streaming down his cheeks and his first thought would be, Ali died. And it was an unbelievably oppressive, grief-stricken thought. And after a few more weeks of it, he was like, I just can't live like this. I can't live like this. And so he challenged his brain to come up with a different thought. And each morning he would wake up and he would still think, Ali died, Ali died, and he'd still be crying. But he added something to that sentence and he added, yes, but he also lived. And in that differently expressed sentiment was 21 years of memories of a father and son who were best friends. And that was what enabled him to carry on living. And if he can do that in that situation, I sure as hell can do it when someone criticizes me on Instagram. Mm. It was a really helpful lesson. We never really thought, sort of taught to challenge our thinking, right? As you say, no. we think it's just, we think it's reality. We think it's true. And we're taught to think, we need to use it to be good at exams, to get ahead, to get a good job. Like that's all thought, isn't it? That's like the exercise yeah, of your brain. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I like love my brain and I'm happy that I have thoughts, but it's that thing of understanding when they're running away with themselves, when they're in control of you. Hard. It is the exercise of a life. Yeah. Term. It, like it really is. Trying to rise above your own thoughts is like... Yeah. Or at least analyze them, hold them out in front of you. And examine them for validity. I mean, you mentioned working out earlier. I definitely find exercise is a helpful way of doing that. Yes. Like, and that's something, again, I never, I never thought I was good at sport. And I, and I translated that wrongly as being like someone who doesn't like exercise mm-hmm. until my 30s, really, until I went through all this stuff, divorce, all that sort of stuff. And I needed to feel strong in myself. But that started with feeling strong in my body. And I realized that it was just an incredibly helpful way of being in my body and being out of my head. And it was just mm. such a relief to find that. <laughs> Isn't it nuts the the way that your brain thinks while you're exercising versus when you're just yeah. in, 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 you know, in your normal life? It's just, it's bizarre. It's like a different, different person shows up and can suddenly see clearly. Totally. And also for me, it feels like I'm not really thinking when I'm exercising, but I am. I will have like processed something that has been bothering me for days. It's so fascinating. I wonder why that is. I, I bet somebody knows. Just the like monotony of doing a task or the, you know, whether it's a running machine or just lifting weights, for some reason, I don't know, the brain just seems to go to a different place. Most of my good ideas, if I have any, <laughs> come from uh, come from the gym or the yeah. or walking or the shower sometimes. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's why people sometimes are kind enough to ask me for writing tips, and like how to write. And one of the things that I say is like, don't feel guilty for not actually doing the writing sometimes. Like sometimes you literally need to take a walk and um, be around people or be on the top deck of a double decker bus and look out the window because your brain needs rest, but it also needs like a creative fallow period where the field is left fallow and then it becomes more fertile in the future. And all of that feeds into your inspiration. 
It's so true. I, you know, people don't appreciate that as one of the real upsides of of exercise. They think it's to make themselves look pretty, but mm. I think the benefit I've had to my mind through exercise is hard to put into words. I- the longest field goal ever attempted is seventy six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I want to talk about failure Yes. now, <laughs> which seems like a good thing to talk about. And in your book, Philosophy, you, you list uh, seven failure principles. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sure you've done this a million times, but I think it's a good good place to start. So the seven failure principles. Yes. Number one, failure just is. Yes. So that actually just feeds in with what we were talking about, which is the idea that failure is a fact. It's inevitable. It's going to happen to all of us. No matter how much we try to avoid it, I guarantee that it will happen. And that can feel scary, but it can also feel liberating because once you've accepted it as a fact, there's no point in trying to avoid it. So you might as well take the risk. So acceptance of failure starts with the observation of it. Failure is a fact, but how you respond to it is within your control. Whether you decide to feel like a failure for many years after the thing that's happened or whether you think to yourself, okay, well, that's taught me something and I'll do it differently next time. I guess the risk there is one bad failure and people stop trying. Exactly. And then I, I was thinking, this is very similar to confidence in the way that like, if you have one bad failure, your performance next time you get an opportunity, if you actually don't manage to just avoid it completely, will probably be worse because of nerves and that, you know, the memory of I'm terrible. And yeah. and then that's going to increase your chances of failing again. And then the kind of like self-negative reinforcing cycle kind of continues and you, your confidence and your sort of, yeah, your guts kind of cascade downwards and can, for some people, work in the other direction where you have a success your confidence builds. You walk mm. on stage to do that you know, public speech next time around with a bit more confidence. You do a better job, which increases yeah. your chance of success and it cascades upwards. Is that how failure works from your experience? It, or? It, it can work like that. I mean, to take the example you've just given, one of the ways of looking at that, if you're then stuck in a downward cycle and you're failing and you're trying at the thing, is that you're therefore in the wrong situation. So you're in the wrong workplace, for instance, that that isn't generous enough to like make you feel okay after your failures or doesn't make you feel like you can be your true self, in which case I would argue you need to remove yourself from that situation and find the place that does suit you. Mm -hmm. Or it can be a question of mindset and a question of applying that mindset that we've just talked about, which is, okay, I failed. I'm feeling in a downward spiral. How much of that is fact? That's a very difficult thing to do on your own when you're at a very low ebb. And that's why I'm a huge advocate of therapy. And again, I know that I come from a privileged place where I can afford therapy. But even if it starts with reaching out to your friend and talking about it, or reaching out to your work helpline and talking about it, or texting shout the mental health charity or calling the Samaritans, that's a really valuable step. And the other thing that I would say there is that I'm very aware that my definition of failure, which is what happens when life doesn't go according to plan, has a fatal flaw, which is that sometimes there are failures that are totally cataclysmic, that we couldn't possibly have predicted, that go against any plan whatsoever, like a global pandemic, like 
terrible illness that you contract, like the death of a loved one, it would be monstrous for me to sit here and say those failures are as easily assimilated or learnt from or dealt with as failing your driving test. And so I'm not saying that at all. Those kind of failures will require a process of mourning and coming to terms with the thing that you've lost. And that's absolutely right and as it should be. My only thing is the way that I choose to live my life is I mourn, but I don't have to constantly relive the pain. I can still feel sadness about something, but I don't need to live in that place of reliving it constantly. Becoming a victim? Yeah. And becoming defined by that. I can choose to be defined by something else. I can choose to be defined by my response to it. I can choose to find some kind of meaning in something that was meaningless at the time. And that's how I choose to live my life because that makes it less sad. And I, and I think that that choice is available for most of us. Topic of conversation that I liked having on this podcast, as you're alluding to there, is about like personal responsibility. Mm. And, um, you know, we all have different starts in life and different, you know, quote unquote advantages and disadvantages. But um, how important do you think personal responsibility is, even in times where something happened and it's really not your quote unquote fault? Yeah, I, I think it's tremendously important. I want to caveat what I'm about to say by saying I'm very aware that certain people are given more opportunities to fail because of the elitist society in which we live, because of the racist society in which we live, because of a society which marginalises entire groups of people through no fault of their own. I'm aware that I, as a white middle-class woman, have been given shitloads of opportunities to fail. So so I'm, I'm totally aware of that, that there's a sliding scale. You have to say that, right? Yeah, of course I have to say that. Because... Because I don't want people to think that I haven't thought about it. And I also think that it's important to have the discussion. Oh, it's crazy how many caveats we've got to do before we say anything these days. Like, I don't care that much. You're going to get me into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I find it, when I I sit here and I I speak to guests and I watch them have to caveat something they're going to say, I just find it so funny because I'm like, I personally do that to some degree, but I also, I'm like, what are you going to... I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting because this is a growing thing because you're right. If you hadn't have done that, someone would have... Yeah. And someone would think, oh, well, it's all very well for yeah. her to say that. And like, it's just it's just a kind of acknowledgement that it's been easier for me in certain sure. respects. Which is fair. And it's, and it's been hard in other ways. Like sure. everyone has their own lived experience. You know, like I'm talking from a place of, you know, I wrote a book called How to Fail, which was part memoir, part manifesto. Like, a memoir by its nature cannot be intersectional. Like I'm speaking from my own life and I'm bringing in voices of other people who can speak to those experiences because it would be delusional and offensive for me to try. Has anyone ever taken that shot at you been like, well, it's easy for you to say? Oh yeah. How does it feel? Um, Be honest. How does it feel? Well, okay. (laughs) It did feel before I'd done the thinking like an attack it did feel like, well, hang on a second. I have worked hard to be where I am. And actually, if you only knew, like there are things that I never talk about or write about that will never be in the public domain because they involve other people. Okay. So I just can't, I choose not to go there. Uh, And then, and then I read more about it and talked more about it. And it's absolutely true that I have had massive advantages in my life. And 
that's a fact, mm. as is the fact that I've worked hard as well. But I did have those advantages. So for me to deny that feels really wrong and actually irresponsible. Yeah. And um, now I feel like there's a certain dialogue that is had around women where I feel women are more often challenged for talking about their personal experiences than men are. And maybe you can tell me that. No, I think you're telling the truth. I think okay. I would agree. Okay. I'd agree. And I don't like that. That's crazy. That's so true. Yeah. It's I, so true. Like, I don't like the fact that I feel as though I constantly have to say, I constantly have to show my battle scars and my wounds and my sadness in order to earn the right to a platform from which I can speak and write mm -hmm. as a woman. Now, there are certain white, middle-class, privately educated men out there who never have to do that apologizing. So they true. never have to do that caveating. So <laughs> People are just like, oh, yeah. they're quirky. Mm. But no. they all say it with their they will like the quote is like say it with your chest they will say it with their chest they'll talk about their success they'll give advice they yeah. don't caveat anything <laughs> it's like this is how you do it and it's funny because i sat here with um maybe shouldn't say their name but i sat here with a young lady who's very successful yeah and she was educated at maybe the best university in the land Grace Beverly. yes <laughs> I heard it. I listened to yeah, it. Yeah. And, and I thought she dealt with it very elegantly. And why has she got to deal with it elegantly? And, uh, this is, I sit here, I think like uh, this, the point I was trying to make to her is like, why is it that you and Grace have to have to like do this like assault course of words and caveats? Because you will, someone will say in the comment section, oh, it's very easy for, but with my male guests, no, they don't do that. And they yeah. don't have to, and they don't get attacked. Can I ask you an off topic personal question? Yeah about race but on the record <laughs> on the record yeah, yeah. totally on the record yeah, yeah. so i felt really conflicted on social media around black lives matter and the horrendous tragic to my yeah. mind illegal death of george floyd and i was like but i don't i felt like i don't need to post on instagram that i think killing black people is bad yeah. like surely that's a given no no, no, Elizabeth, silence <laughs> is violence. I'm, I'm taking the first one. I know, but I do. So I would love to hear from you, like, what's my responsibility? Because I did post a black square because I was like, if I don't post a black square, then that, I don't, that feels wrong to me as well. I, I mean, but this consistent. is just like, this is a huge issue with society yeah. because um, we're thinking in such binary bullshit ways about these really complex, sensitive, systemic issues. It's in that moment, and the reason I did this post on Instagram, it went viral and like everyone's seen it. And I've talked about this podcast multiple times, mainly because I just had Ant Middleton on, so I've talked about it there. But obviously when uh, we watch a, 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 a black man get killed for nine minutes asking for his mum, any sound, mm. sort of morally sound human being on planet earth will feel a bunch of emotions. I watched it and I didn't say anything for three days because I just I just didn't want to see that fucking clip again. No. I didn't want to talk about it. I watched that clip and just thought, oh, I felt sick to my stomach and I was angry and I was sad and I just didn't want to. And then my DMs, in my DMs, I've got all these DMs from people, black people going, you've not stood with us, you fucking butt. And I'm just thinking, oh, fuck off. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? This isn't, and, and in those moments, what social media and the world will try and do is it will try and make you um, fit exactly into a, a camp that that think in one way, that act in one way, that use one hashtag, that post one thing. And I will not. 
and I will not. And so in that moment, what I posted was defending white people, I guess, or everyone and said, listen, people process things in their own ways. And that's normal. Obviously. Do you agree with that statement? People process especially traumatic things in their own. Everyone agrees with that sentence. And some people might be thinking, they might be reading, they might just be listening and that's okay. And also my last point here is I'm going to be black forever for my entire life. My kids will also be, have a little bit of black in them too, maybe a quarter black, depending on who I marry. Um, and, uh, so if you actually give a shit about changing things, your response isn't a black tile. Your response would be something much more systemic. Your response might be educating yourself and your friends. Mm. Virtue signaling on social media. That For me, that's a sign that you probably don't really care, yeah. if anything. And like, you can't say that unless you're black. I'm the only person that can say that. Like, not, um, not the only one. I mean, there's more of us. <laughs> but I mean, like, I'm in my friendship group. I'm the only one and that in can this say room. that. Because you'd be, all of you'd be finished off. Every single one of you would get finished if you said anything like that. So, and and that, it's a sad old world we live in because I know everyone in this room agrees. Not one of you can say it. And that's a sad place to be where it, this isn't a war of ideas. This is a war of like virtue signaling. At, like we're not, it's not competition of the best ideas. It's a, it's a competition of like who is correct and who is incorrect. Cancel, accept, cancel, accept. Mm. And man, oh, what a sad place. Can't even have a conversation without someone fucking going to lose your job. I'm fortunately unemployed. So no one can find me. <laughs> And I don't really need the money either. So like, you know what I mean? Like the podcast sponsors, if they, if they thought I was immoral or whatever, they could pull out. But No, I think, thank you. Because that's, I think you're right. And I think compassion and nuance can't be fitted into the binary world of social media a lot of the time. Never. I'm really sorry because I've completely like... <laughs> No, no, it really, it really. Taking a detour oh man, here. Just, I'm so annoyed at this, and the the thing that annoys me more is I don't think it can be fixed. I don't know, I don't know how it can be fixed. I know the way that algorithms work, and I know that they create echo chambers where everyone thinks like you. So the minute anyone in your echo chamber is not thinking like you, uh, you, the way that they reinforce and reward your thought mm. using these algorithms, you're not going to get rewarded. You're going to get attacked, and so it's. It's fighting against, it's fighting a losing battle. At some point, I'll probably be cancelled for something. I'm like pretty aware of this because I refuse to, I, I like to think in nuance. I like to think, I don't think left or right. I think usually the truth is somewhere in the middle often. Yeah. More so than it is on the far left or the far right. And that is a dangerous way to think. It's, it's a crime. And for me, that's a form of imprisonment, which is the the inability to think and speak for yourself. That's a form of imprisonment in the same way, putting someone in a cage. It's And for me also, not allowing people to express themselves. We've seen the harm that does. We've seen when people can't express their sexuality, they kill themselves more. So I will, this is what I was thinking, I was like, I will not allow myself to be imprisoned, my thought to be imprisoned and my expression to be put in prison because I actually think the net impact of that is much worse than just someone, some writing some shit in the comment section about me. I'd like to be a th free thinker. What do you think of Piers Morgan? <laughs> Sometimes he hits, sometimes he misses. He's, got, he's a bit of a narcissist in some ways. Sometimes he's like, right, sometimes he's wrong. Sometimes I agree, sometimes I don't. Yeah. Shouldn't be deplatformed. We can all scream at him, but um, he's not, he's not like, he's not a racist. He's not um, doing it. He's not like encouraging people to like hit, hurt each other. He's not encouraging harm or violence. He has an opinion which some people disagree with sometimes. Mm. Talking about Sharon, Sharon Osbourne, she's been chucked off her show for defending Piers Morgan. And I watched the clip last night of um, what she said. And all she goes is, you know, what has he said that's racist? 
And the, the host responds to him. It's not what he said. He hasn't said anything racist. It's just his, you know, basically his attitude towards the situation. Oh, come on. Fucking hell. But do you like, think, oh, so do you, but do you think that because we've had millennia of things one way, the transitional phase is always going to have to be extreme as the pendulum swings to one to one end and so that it can then stabilise in the centre. And we're just living through an age of transition. I, I like to think that sometimes, but then I know how algorithms work. And I think that the algorithms are reinforcing our echo chambers. Every single day, my algorithm is telling me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. And it's based on groupthink. It's like these pockets of groupthink. And the other thing is like, just while I think about it logically, I think, you know, I read this quote one day and it was like, if your opinions and beliefs almost identically resemble the people around you, then they're not your opinions and beliefs. And yeah. I thought about that a lot and I was like, That's no, this really is true. Yeah. If we want to get like really deep about this, yeah. most of our beliefs and opinions come from the society we live in. And you've only got to go back 5,000, 10,000 years and see the barbaric things we did that we thought were morally sound and okay to realise that, in fact, our opinions and beliefs are mainly given to us by society. In fact, good and bad, if you look at what we did a hundred years ago, if you look at what happened in certain parts of the world and, you know, history, those people thought they were good. And that was the right thing to do. And so what are my opinions today? The majority, what social media and the world has told me is the correct thing to do. How moral are we? If we felt completely moral when we used to, like, behead people and kill black people and chase... We thought that yeah, was good fun. go on crusade. So... Yeah, it's a lot. Um, maybe a topic for anyway. Right. What was I in Failure. this book? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Point that number was a two <laughs> of <laughs> fail philosophy. <laughs> I like lost my way in this book. Quickly, yeah. got the list here as well. So, point number two in your book is you are not your anxious brain. I think you've talked about yes, that. That's so the we'll, we'll move on. Almost everything feels feels they ev almost everyone feels they have failed in their twenties. I mean, not you. Okay, so. It's Stephen Bartlett, I'm pretty Still. sure. Do you think you failed in your 20s? Probably personally. Sorry. Oh, multiple. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a good question, actually. Multiple times, yeah. yeah. Started my first business at 18. It was clearly a failure. Left that when I was 20 years old. Failed in loads of relationships. Failed every day in business. Not the big, like, momentous failures other than my business that one would assert. But no, yeah. I failed. Probably more than anybody, to be fair. I think that's yeah. so great to hear. Yeah. And also, I think that a lot of people struggle in their 20s, particularly in this day and age, because of the curse of comparison and because we live in a culture of curated perfection where you're constantly comparing yourself to your peers' filtered appearance on Instagram mm. and the life that they seem to be living. So we're comparing our insides with everyone else's projection of their outsides. Exactly, yeah. And for many people, although I know not you, but for many people, it's the first time that they've come out of full-time education and come out of a system of exam and reward, exam and reward. Yeah. And there is no exam that you can sit to show that you're being a good grown-up. So you feel quite lost. Plus, piling on top of that, the pressure to find your passion, to like make a career for yourself, but also to earn enough to pay your rent, living in house shares, like just trying to make your way and trying to forge your identity in this day and age, it's just so hard to do all that at once. And then you're like, oh, and I should be having like a thriving personal life and I should either be in a long-term <laughs> relationship or having one night sounds and being footloose and fancy free and drinking loads. And then at the weekend making vegan brownies because I got to watch what I eat and all of that sort of stuff. And it's 
exhausting. And so really what I wanted to say in that failure principle was that so many people come on in podcasts and say that they feel they failed at their 20s. And I think a lot of us fall into the trap, and I did too, of believing that we had to have our life sorted out by then. And actually your 20s are a decade of transition, of discovering who you are, of grinding up the spices of life in your pestle and mortar. And the older you get, my experience has been the more you know yourself and the more you know what you want to do. And that's where success lies. I've had so many more opportunities after leaving my 20s behind in the rearview mirror. Wow. <laughs> Nothing else to add. You've really thought about that. You've written a book on it. So, yeah. Um, number four, breakups are not a tragedy. Your ex-partner has taught you something. Yeah. One of the things you said, which I, which I thought was really, really powerful, is that um, a relationship ending doesn't mean that it failed. That's it in a nutshell. Like, <clears throat> I've had countless failed relationships, and uh, and they and they and it sucks. Like heartbreak, there is no pain like heartbreak. Oh, I hate it. It's the worst, <laughs> isn't it? It's the worst. It really. I yeah. I totally relate. <laughs> and I now realise that I learned something very instructive from each one of those relationships, and from the fact that they ended. It taught me something that I needed to know about myself, and I realised that love that was ready for me I didn't need to fight to convince it mm. <laughs> like it would meet me where I was and it might not come in the package that I expected and it didn't I I met Justin on a hinge date <laughs> that I oh, almost wow. didn't go on and it doesn't and it doesn't immediately feel like the thing that you thought you wanted because actually that hasn't worked out for you <laughs> mm. so it's always better to make a different choice i think so yeah it's just about how although relationships feel that they might be life ending at the time they never never are. they when they end they never never are and often someone has been sent to you whether it be a friendship a work colleague or a lover to teach you a lesson that you needed to know and when a relationship ends it's because you've been taught that lesson God, it's a shitty lesson to learn. And also like, the, when you when you go through a breakup, as you've described there, um, not letting it end is part, in my experience, of the reason why something new doesn't start. Yes. Oh, you know that's I mean? so, yes. I mean, that's what Oprah would call a teachable moment. Is it? Yeah. You need, to, you need to create the space for the new thing to come in, which means leaving something behind. What I talk about a little bit before about quitting being just as much of a skill and an art form as starting. We glamorize yes. starting, but there's a real talent, not yet, uh, there's a real skill to knowing how to quit, how to move forward, because, you know, starting's great, but the thing you do before you start something is to quit something else. And yeah. that is, I, I mean, just from reading your books and stuff and listening to the, just the, the interviews you've done, not appreciated enough because it involves uncertainty you're throwing yourself off a cliff sometimes and building the paraglider as you fly yes and we're also taught to avoid feelings of sadness like good vibes only and you're like no actually sometimes you need to be in that sadness you need to feel that discomfort to understand what life really is life is texture life is all sorts of emotions and when we feel grief because a relationship has ended or because we've lost someone that as that famous quote says, is the price you pay for love. And in a way, it's a beautiful thing to feel because it's a signifier of how much you love. Just sucks though. I know. You know I mean, it just doesn't, it just suck. Like I just giving people advice on heartbreak. I feel like it's such a, for me, when I'm like in my DMs and someone sent me something about, I've just broken up with this person and whatever. Yeah. It's such an, an intoxicating 
force like heartbreak yeah but i'm like my words aren't going to help you you just basically have to tough it out and to and to try as much as you can in believing that your future will be better yeah you'll get past this and believing that rejection is protection if you're rejected that person is not for you either because they've been stupid enough to fucking reject you (laughs) or because action is character. And if they've dumped you, it's like, well, do you really want to trust that person for the rest of your life? No. I'm going to, is, is that, is that true? And I'm playing devil's advocate here intentionally because I actually don't know the answer. If you get rejected, is that person not right for you? It, I mean, yes, I think, but I, I suppose it depends on the nature of the rejection. Like it has to be a serious one. <laughs> um, it, it can't just be an unread WhatsApp message yeah, yeah, like yeah, that you're point. interpreting as a rejection. They like full on rejected. Yeah, I love. think that's, listen, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's what I choose to believe sure. because it makes me feel better about life yeah, yeah. to believe. I think by de- your de- the definition you gave of like, well, they didn't appreciate you. Yeah. What about like, how if we think about taking responsibility in those situations and we say okay my relationship with this guy that i loved ended because i have problems because not when i say problems yeah. it's like i have jealousy or i have things that i haven't dealt with is that also you know that's it's hard for people to do that yeah blame so is super easy and heartbreak you're so right and that's where personal responsibility comes in yeah and so in the immediate aftermath of a breakup you're going to probably feel heartbroken and really sad once you've processed that then it's then your responsibility is to understand what part you played in the dynamic but for those first few weeks do whatever you need to do to get through and if you need to blame someone and just keep saying rejection is protection and like what a loser do it because you just need to get through that initial phase of awfulness i actually my last serious breakup, I was in such a dark place. I Googled how long does it take to get over heartbreak? <laughs> it's like, actually, that was a really good six weeks. I did feel better. It was a good, it was like a manageable length of time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to feel miserable for six weeks. And once you commit to the acceptance of that, mm. it becomes a lot easier to deal with because you're not struggling against feeling it you're like well i'm on track because i'm now week four so yeah i'm still feeling miserable that's okay and it somehow makes you feel better Uh, no i get that yeah are you post breakup right now um not post breakup no uh i'm i'm post um something ending okay um i'm sorry no no it wasn't it was it was um i consider it to be a choice that i made Okay. Yeah, so uh, that's not necessarily the best example. For, for me, the the real significant heartbreak moments I had were all when I was when I was younger, really. Mm. And uh yeah, and it just always sucked. Um but I, obviously I've got a lot of friends that are going through breakups and stuff and it's always difficult to give them advice because you're they're so their head is gone. Like there's yeah. no way I can describe it. There, there, there's no sense there when in matters of love. It's just all so yeah, just asking them to tough it out I think is is, is all I've ever got in terms of advice. Well, now you can give them a copy of Philosophy. Well, there you go. <laughs> Point number seven. When we choose to share our vulnerabilities is when we feel most satisfaction. Most connection, I think, is what oh. I said. Well, I don't... Why does it say satisfaction on my list? I don't know, I like that too, because you probably do feel personal satisfaction. It's like, okay, but when we choose to be open about our vulnerabilities, that's paradoxically when we find the most strength and the source of the most real connections with other people. Amen. Yeah. 
And that's something that I have genuinely learned through the podcast. The first season of the podcast I did, I was very much, I came from a very traditional newspaper journalist background. So for me, it was like, I'm interviewing my guest. Mm -hmm. I will ask the questions and I will listen. And then I will ask another question. And it was only as time went on that I felt more comfortable sharing my own experiences. And whenever I did that, I had such an incredible like feedback loop of like just amazing people sharing their stories and their vulnerabilities and also saying that they felt less alone because I shared mine. Mm. And really that's what my entire life is about ultimately is connection. And so I really want to encourage people not to be scared of opening up about the things that they perceive as their weaknesses because so often what you think of as your most personal shame turns out to have most universal resonance and that was certainly my experience talking about fertility and miscarriage and divorce like actually that's where I've had the greatest impact I think and I'm so grateful for that why do you think that is why do you think vulnerable in terms of like why it has such wide resonance why do you think that is because I think that when we're vulnerable, we're being real and we're letting our masks slip and you're seeing a glimpse of who the authentic person is. And there's something just absolutely quintessentially human about that. So it's a human recognizing another human. It's a human recognizing another human beneath the pretense. And I think it also reassures people because as we've been talking about, in this culture that we live in, which is so defined by social media and how you appear and the currency of perfection, again, it's such a relief. It makes you feel like you can breathe. If someone's like, oh God, I'll tell you about today. I sat in bed in my pajamas eating hummus direct from the tub because I felt really down. That's an act of singular generosity to someone else who can then have the space to talk about how they're feeling. Is there any such thing as too vulnerable? Or oversharing? There's, yeah, there's, I don't think there's any such thing as too vulnerable. I do think there is such a thing as oversharing. And I only say, I, I say, I make that distinction because oversharing is about telling your story to others. And obviously there are right and appropriate times and places to do that. I'm not advocating that someone goes into work and just starts sobbing at their desk. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's definitely a time and place for that, but I wouldn't suggest doing that every single day. Like to protect yourself, you need to find a safe space that you can share those vulnerabilities with and then build up your strength and your confidence and realize what it is that you do want to speak more publicly about. Because I don't think that you can share with everyone immediately after you've experienced pain. Like that's too soon. Mm -hmm. And also you can't trust everyone to honor what you're sharing. So I don't think you can be too vulnerable, but it's a question of choosing the things that you then take your vulnerability and share from and who you share them with. That was such an ineloquent way no, of saying that. No, it was that. good. No, no, it's a really- It's basically about boundaries. No, yeah, no, I completely, I completely, I was yeah. thinking when you were saying it, because I remember having a conversation with one of my team members in New York one day where- um, I was trying to, you know, the, the issue you have when you're a CEO um, is someone might have some struggles, some mental health issues, or they might have some problems going on at home. How do you tell them without being yeah. a dick to to not broadcast that every day to their team yeah. below them, 
but also knowing the importance of speaking and expression is part of the cure. So I remember having a conversation with one particular person and just saying to them, like, the key thing is like knowing the right outlet for that. Yes. And what you've described it as is like the safe space. Exactly. And and that can be a different safe space for different people. It can be your therapist. It can be your sibling. It Mm. can be um, the in-house therapy that your workplace hopefully provides. But I also think that it goes back to what we were saying earlier if a team leader is in that position, I think it's about being able to bring your authentic whole self to work, but being able to show that you're not defined by the things that have gone wrong. Mm. Or if you are defined by it, you're defined in a good way in that you're choosing to lean into this particular feeling because it's going to teach you something that you need to know. That's the sort of responsibility of a leader, I think. It's not to pretend that everything's fine and to wear this mask of the perfect boss. It's to be someone who acknowledges that life can be tough and who shares what they're going to do about that. I think we need to have confidence in our leaders that they have an idea about what to do with it when they're sharing it in the workplace. And this is the problem with Matt Hancock being such a robot, isn't it? Oh my gosh, don't even get me started on (laughs) that. I don't know if he experiences emotion. I probably shouldn't say that because that's unfair. But I just, I look at this guy and I think, do you understand what people are feeling? I don't think you do. It's the problem with so many politicians. I was so inspired by Angela Merkel recently because she apologised for having overturned a lockdown ruling over Easter. She's like, I'm really sorry I got that wrong. I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Just quickly to go back to oversharing. And Jacinda. Oh my gosh, Jacinda is, I mean, we both need to get her on our perspective podcasts. We really do. Um, Oversharing as it pertains to women, just very quickly. I think women are often shamed into silence. And I've definitely experienced that. Someone being like, why do you talk about all this stuff? Why don't you keep it private? And I'm like, precisely so that I attack that kind of narrative because I feel that so many people feel shame and stigma over things they don't need to feel it for and it's because people stay silent so I think it's also a bit of a stick with which to beat women I completely agree Mm. is there anything you Mm. wouldn't share that doesn't involve someone else oh that's a great question because every time I, every time you, yeah. you hit a wall in terms of what you're willing to share, it's because you say, well, that involves someone else, so I won't share. But is there anything about yourself that you wouldn't share that doesn't involve anybody else? I am still determined to be a mother. <laughs> um, when I get pregnant, I will have, I don't think I would share that publicly because I would feel fearful and anxious and also because I have such respect for women who are going through fertility issues that I would just never do that but that involves another person the Mm. one that I'm carrying so I'm not sure whether the parameters of your question really fit around but that is one thing that I've thought about yeah so that's quite a heavy answer (laughs) That's a really interesting point there about the, you, you wouldn't want to share it because you've probably um, resonated, well, of course you have, I can probably, you've resonated with a lot of women who are going through that same experience yes. and you've probably got a lot of those people in your audience. So for some of those people, it might, I mean, you know, humans are humans. The news that, you know, when you have your, your own child might feel like shit to them. 
Definitely. And I respect that because I've been there and I felt it and I feel it still. And and I totally understand that. You feel it as in, it's like a jealousy of, it's like an envy yes. or like a, yes. of women that have a child or that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's never personally directed. It's just a sort of um, envy or yearning would be a better word for an experience that thus far has been denied me. And I think lockdown and the pandemic has been so hard for all women and it's been incredibly hard for people homeschooling their children but for people who don't have children and desperately long for that for people who are going through fertility treatment that's been delayed by the pandemic for people who've experienced miscarriages during lockdown as I have it's incredibly painful to see parents complaining about homeschooling and how difficult that is to have these children that they have to homeschool. That's a very difficult thing. Now, no one is to blame for that. I take personal responsibility for my reaction and that's where I need to curate my social media feed. That is absolutely not the fault of the parent question. They should totally do that and lean into it and that is completely right and appropriate. That's up to me to take that responsibility on. It's just that I know I wouldn't feel comfortable shouting it from the rooftops because I know how fucking painful and traumatic it is to go through. I really do. Listen, so your um, your vulnerability and your honesty is is really moving and it's very, very rare. Oh, and you know, you. I can't I can't even begin to imagine how many um people women you've helped because of your vulnerability you probably don't even get to see it so i want to thank you on behalf of all those people I, as i was reading about your story and your journey i was like really taken aback by how open and honest you're willing to be because you don't need to be right mm. um i'm sure that you know as you've described in some of the things you've written you've, you've discovered that it's actually really almost paradoxically quite a selfish thing to be so selfless in that way but um, yeah, I think you're just remarkable. And I think um, what you've written and the work you've produced is phenomenal. And I just wanted to thank you so much for coming here today and being as vulnerable with me as you have been across all of your other work. It's, um, it's truly, a, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's a for- fortunate, we're fortunate as a society to have people like you in it oh, who are willing to help. So thank you. Well, thank you for giving me a safe space and for making me feel like I can be vulnerable with you. I have loved this conversation so much. I really, truly have. And I love that I've been able to swear. (laughs) But I also love what you do and what you stand for. And honestly, your Instagram page, I don't know how you have so much wisdom at such a young age. But we will find your perfect match. Please, please do. (laughs) Your book, Philosophy, it's um, everywhere. I actually went down to St. Pancras yesterday just to get it. Got it off the shelf. I think. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Um, where else can people find you, and what else are you working on that they should check out? The podcast as well. How to fail. Yes. That's a smash hit book. Sunday Times bestseller. Yes. Uh, I wrote another book before that called How to Fail. <laughs> Originally, <laughs> everything I've ever learned from things going wrong, which is my memoir, part memoir, part manifesto. The podcast available on all podcast platforms. Wow. Um, I'm on social media at Eliza B Day, and I've got a novel out. My new oh, novel wow. is out in September, and it's called Magpie. And um, it is okay. I have to be a bit vague because there's a massive twist in it. Okay. And it's a sort of psychological twisty novel, but it's about a lot of what we've been talking about today. It's about dysfunctional motherhood and what happens when you think you know what you want and then your dreams come true and then it just turns out to be a total illusion. Oh, wow. Have I sold it? Is it a thriller? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it it's basically like... a thriller driven by kind of. <laughs> 
warped characters. Okay, interesting. And I'm obsessed with magpies. That's why it's called magpie. Okay. Uh, I don't do want you to salute magpies? Sorry? Do you salute magpies? I don't know. I don't mm. think that. No. <laughs> no one ever told me that tale. But um, <laughs> thank you so much again. And it means well to me that you came and made the time for this today. And I'm, I'm sure that you've um, imparted a ton of important inspiration on our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for having me. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.